All right. Well, like in the last episode on this topic that neither of you have listened to, but I have, and perhaps the listeners have if they listen in order, I'll, I'll ask you all to introduce yourself uh, in just a little bit. But first, while we're on the, uh, the cloud native enterprise architect jag, I want to do a quick Rorschach test. We'll go with you first, Matt. When I say the phrase enterprise architect, what do you think about? Uh, I generally think about somebody who kind of sits, uh, you know, between the business and technology. I've seen multiple kind of variants of enterprise architecture. Some are more application focused, some are more infrastructure focused. But I think, um, you know, practiced somewhat as intended, it's it tends to be more more business focused. I worked with this enterprise architect uh, when I was at PayPal who. Like I, I can't really explain it, but he like could magically dazzle executives and convince them to do just about anything, mm. uh, and it was pretty, pretty amazing to watch. Um, but was always about kind of bringing everything back to the to the business outcomes and really understanding, like why are we doing what we're doing? What are the risks? What are the constraints? Um, and how does this make sense with all of the other stuff that we're trying to do? Mm, we should we um, should come so back it, to that word outcomes because when I was talking with uh, with our buddy Matt Walburn in the past episode, he used that word a lot too. I think that's that's a fun word. I like that. Yeah. So, and to my credit, I did listen to that episode last night. That, oh, uh, shocked me. Now, uh, it was after I had a glass of whiskey. So, how much of it I can recall, I'm uh, not totally sure. But yes. I did listen to it. Like, it did enter my ears. Well, you know, it might turn out the cloud native and cloud native enterprise architecture is just a synonym for brown booze. We'll, we'll, we'll find <laughs> out. <laughs> so, so, Andrew, when I, say, when I say the, I mean, you're a little tainted from hearing Matt talk. Hopefully, you went into the sound isolation booth of your own accord. If not, that's fine. But when I say the phrase enterprise architect, what do you think about? So what is it that you say you do here? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise known that's as a, papers, business papers. Version. Yeah. I, I'm curious to ask Matt after uh, he, he reflected on his past exposure to someone who could get the execs to do anything. How many of those PowerPoint driven decisions actually turned out the way that the, uh, the model suggested? So I think it was uh, interesting in that it wasn't so much about trying uh, to predict the future, but when we were talking about spending large amounts of money for, especially big, art, you know, big architectural changes, um, it was it was definitely helpful in helping uh, some of these bigger ideas that had a lot of technical complexity. Um, being able to be represented to like the VP level um, and and the C level uh, executives, and I and I would say that there were definitely multiple situations where we were able to move a ball forward um, that we had had trouble moving forward uh, once he put his kind of grease on it, so to speak, or the PowerPoint spin. Because so I don't it's, think it's it's marketing and sales for technical decision making i mean a lot of it quite frankly was was that to some degree and you know i i'd be remiss to downplay the importance that it played in you know really helping us solve some pretty tough problems or at least getting the buy-in to spend the money and get the resources to go solve some of those tough problems absolutely now now what what did what did that uh i mean you know generalizing what is the uh aforementioned Greece end up looking like? Like, what is it? Um, to, you, to use a phrase from my old days, right? We used to talk about uh, business IT alignment. And uh, I think there's some of that scurrying around in there. But like, what is uh, what does that look like? What does that end up being? Uh, again, a lot of it ends up being about things like how, how do we change um, the economics, like the scaling economics, um, why do we need to do this? Especially when you're, I mean, this was a while back, so I'm kind of playing back my own history here, but we weren't kind of in that mode of DevOps yet. Um, and even like in terms of cloud, we were pretty early days in cloud, but we were trying to deal with kind of the reality of the thousand plus applications that we had to manage 
trying to make them more resilient, growing at 30% a year or plus, and um, figuring out how to not have the economics scale with the growth. So how do we like mm. make it cheaper to drive more scale? And there were some tough economic or tough architectural things that we had to do that involved like rewriting some software that like most people generally didn't want to touch, but we had to sell uh, leadership on the opportunity that um, that investment would yield. And so a lot of it was, this is the effort, this is the risks, this is how the economic scale today, uh, this is how the failure patterns manifest themselves today. If we make this change, you know, this is how the economics get better at, you know, say double volume, triple volume. This is how, um, you know, this is how the uh, the availability principles get better. So it was, I mean, it, you know, it was a fun experience um, for me, at least. I, I definitely learned a lot. Well, well, let's let's listen, well, listen let's, to that. Let's let's get back to that in just a little bit. But like as promised, why don't you all introduce yourself first? Since uh, since you talked last, Andrew, why don't you introduce yourself? Both of you are frequent guests, so most people probably know who you are. But go ahead, give a brief introduction. Uh, Andrew Clay Schaefer, blah blah blah, DevOps Cloud, <laughs> you know, Agile Software, Continuous Delivery, Buzzword Bingo, exactly. There you go. Yourself, Matt. Uh, yeah, I'm Matt Curry. I lead cloud engineering over at Allstate, and Cote uh, and I like to pontificate on this podcast from time to time. That's right. We got to we gotta have more to feed into Matt's new car stereo <laughs> for him to listen <laughs> there to. There you go. That's right. That's that's go. what we're here I, for. I do I do work for Pivotal with, with Cote, I suppose. That's right. That's exactly. All of us together. So you, you were saying, Andrew, I interrupted you. Please. Uh, well, I was on. just so, – so Matt's telling this story – and it's interesting in its own right, but it's not necessarily what I see reflected in a lot of other people in other positions with that enterprise architect title. And then, like, so I'd like to kind of explore that meta definition of what enterprise architect is across the industry, if we could. And then I'm also curious how much of Matt talked about the enterprise architect selling the, the, and necessarily selling some of these technical decisions to the business, I'm curious how much the enterprise architect actually influenced the technology and the frontline development. Yeah, I think, um, so what's interesting is I, I kind of reflect on, on Puppet, uh, your experience with Puppet a little bit in that, like in, in kind of these configuration management systems, we have this view of what it is versus what it should be. And I feel like my experience with this particular individual was like my rare glimpse into like what it should be. And when we look, especially across um, a lot of enterprises and we look at the actual practice of enterprise architecture, like I'm not sure the way that it's practiced in its most common form uh, actually yields the re results I described, right? You know, I think I think even though it was at a software company long ago, I, well, that, I that's a that's a different question than I asked. Though, did the enterprise architect that you had in in that role influence the the technical decisions or or the the frontline development decisions? So, I would say not as much. Um, they were more. I mean, there were layers of architecture, um, and and they were like the super architects, so to speak. Um, so you had architects that were more infrastructure focused uh, around particular areas of infrastructure. Again, like I'm kind of stepping back in history, so not saying not necessarily advocating for this or advocating against it, um, but that you know you had like storage architects and network architects and security architects. And then, um, so you had like these infrastructure level architects, and then you tended to have um, platform architects. And over time, I would say the pendulum tended to swing between we have a centralized group called architecture on the application side that's like the application architecture people, and more of a decentralized model where like each domain has one or multiple architects. Um, and then they come together through some informal centralized construct like a enterprise architecture council or something. Got it. Um, and then, and then, 
all of that kind of fed up into this, you know, higher level enterprise architecture that took the the collaboration and ideas that came out of those lower level architecture teams and kind of glued it together into more of a strategic view, if that makes sense. It it does. I guess the one the one question I would have, or or one question I do have, is how would you view that relative to you know the responsibilities of a CTO or a CIO? Because it kind of sounds like what you described fits into some of that kind of executive level responsibility. Shouldn't there be a technical voice at that executive level that that's advocating for this stuff as well? Yeah, I I believe there should be. Um, and generally there was like the person who, you know, that, that, that architect reported up through was generally, um, you know, like V a VP of, of either architecture or VP of, um, technology. Uh, so that person had very direct access to kind of the folks that they had to sell the message to at the same time you have to, you know, as you know, with these big changes, like. You have to get buy-in from in, in many times siloed uh, organizations, or they're siloed by VPs. So you don't have like direct authoritarian control to say thou shall. Uh, you have to socialize these ideas and um, get folks to make changes. Um, you, you have to build the coalition of the willing. Yeah. Ex- yes, and and you have to convince people that it's worth it. You know, for the whole organization, even though. It, may not necessarily seem worth it for them. It might it <laughs> which might is seem like a challenge. It might seem like work for them. Right. Uh which is why like I always have this thing about I mean the one thing that was an interesting pattern is anytime we had created a client library like this was the story of like you need everybody to upgrade and you have to go beat on everybody's door and then the individuals are like hey what I have seems to work fine. And you're like yeah, but it's not going to work fine for much longer because, you know, of scale or of security or of this or of that. And having to go get all of those development teams to basically upgrade um, or, you know, especially if it for some reason can't be backwards compatible is a huge challenge. So I, th- I think I think we have enough like uh, we've thrown enough straw out on the floor that I think we can put, pull together a pretty good straw person, uh, as it were. And uh, let, let me, you know, let, let's let's ramble through that a little bit. And, and why don't we, we frame it, actually, because I've been following you tweeting about this book you've been reading. Uh-huh. So why don't we frame that kind of meta conversation with just a short kind of summary of some of the stuff you've read in that book? Well, sure, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the uh, that's the straw person there. But but essentially, you look at the um, the sort of impressions about what what an enterprise architect does. Right. And things like like Matt's talked about. And then some of the. Uh, uh, some of the ideas standing behind the questions you're asking, Andrew, <laughs> to some extent. And what you come out with, right, is, is like uh, the first major idea of, of traditional enterprise architecture, right? Like what, what, are, what our straw person's doing is, as, as uh, most people will say, governance. And in fact, just as an aside, that's what like start, started me off on this whole figuring this thing out as I was talking with a, uh, an enterprise architect type at, at one of the at some EBC somewhere, and the, and they refused to word, use the word governance, but they kept trying to ask me how to do governance. It was it was funny, but so you have this oversight, and 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 Matt kind of hit upon some of the technical things, right? And also the roles that you mentioned come up, right? Like we need someone to have governance over security. We need someone to have governance over this client library. So it's almost this. Um, it's it's just a short little hot hop and skip from government governance to policing. It's almost like this policing that is done to ensure quality, to, to make it positive again. And this comes up over and over again in uh, the literature is we need someone to ensure that we are doing the right thing, that quality is being followed, that uh, policies and policies, you could put think of that as another word of uh, a dumb thing we did in the past or one we're predicting we were doing that we would like to not do again. Like I think, Matt, you have this this nice analogy of speedboat to uh, paddleboat that sort of comes up there. So basically you have someone setting and somehow enforcing this governance, which ma- drives all these decisions about what you can and cannot do. And so that's, that's a huge thing that comes up. Now that's sort of like uh, 
one of the central function. And, and Matt, you started off with like the other main function, which is bi-directionally translating between the business and IT, right? So understanding what the business goals are, to use this word, what their strategy is, how they want to make money, what the customers are, what the, the business would like to be able to do. And then there's a little bit of innovation in here, but it's essentially understanding how to go back to IT and do something that's helpful. <laughs> and every now and then, uh, there's this idea that you should be on the, this is always at the end of a description of what enterprise architects do. Like any, any description, any book or, or article that's describing what some role in IT does, you can always tell what they don't do very much by what they mentioned last as the aspirational thing. But if everything else is going well, you're also supposed to be on the, on the lookout for new ways of doing things and, and new opportunities and things like that. So you've got that, uh, you've got that melding of like understanding what the business wants, telling what the, telling the IT department what that means, translating it into what they do. And then the other central function is uh, setting the governance, making sure people are not drunk and disorderly and they're doing things. Now, there's a third part and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop. And, 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 you know, we can detail out what's in this, this stuff I've been reading, but it all kind of sprouts from this. Uh, the third part is, um, I guess you could call it like making prescriptive decisions about what technology you're going to use. And, and I think this is the part where it starts to drive developers, especially crazy <laughs> is for example, uh, in the past, you could have the enterprise architects say, what we should do is, uh, we have a type of business that wants to be able to quickly combine and integrate various services together. We all serve the same customer in our business. And so everyone who's trying to sell and cross-sell to this customer should get access to that customer's data. I mean, this is just a very simple use case. And w pick whatever business you want where there's multiple things you're selling to one customer. You could pick a uh, department store from the 80s where you've got a hair salon, a photo booth, and uh, maybe even a place where you can get a store card and then you can buy clothes, right? Of course, they didn't have computers back then, but just take that use case. We want to have one unified view of the customer so it's easier to sell things to them. Like if you ever deal with a government, they often don't have one view of the customer. You have always, you're always filling this stuff back out again. So anyhow, an enterprise architect would come in and be like, that's a very important business thing. It's going to give us our 5 to 30% growth or whatever. So we need to have one system. And I'm mixing together history here. But the system we're going to have is a web service oriented thing. Uh, and it's going to be part of a service oriented architecture. And you go to this, this web service endpoint and you figure out what the customer is and you get all of the data from them. And it's just a whole old mess of XML. And when you want to update it, we'll probably have like an ESB uh, because that seems more resilient. And then we have a standard way of like updating what's going on with the customer. And so, you know, I'm doing all the stereotypical uh, enterprise architecture straw manny stuff here, including as, as what's called the enterprise death star or the web services death star. And, you know, so it's that that prescription of doing something, um, and then to to race ahead a little bit. I think, I think what the other the second thing that drives people crazy about enterprise architects is it seems like you can't really change what that prescription is. So it takes a lot of effort, for example, to say, "Hey, that was kind of cool in two thousand five." But it's like 2017, and I don't really like using that ESB and that web services endpoint. Um, and I don't know. I mean, there's there's like this huge gap between traditional enterprise architecture, and then if we swing, if we go to uh, Andrew's blah blah, we go over to this other end of like the DevOps team, and even throw microservices in there to some extent. And I don't I don't think I don't think this straw person has met up with the uh, the blah blah people very effectively. Well, I can use uh, stronger, more articulate words if you like, but that's that's <laughs> what I'm going with today. The the thing that jumps out at me listening to you build up the straw man is, and, and I I think that this is part of the thing that everyone's grappling with making this transition, is that there is a qualitative difference between the the type of things that someone's thinking about in terms of connecting together all these pieces that the internal IT should essentially be capable of mm. versus enabling this kind of rapid, you know, digital 
digital enabled uh, productization of software. And it's not that those two things don't connect, but I, I just see like a qualitative difference in the way that those skill sets or that, that understanding kind of comes together. And they both require kind of a deep understanding. One I think is, is a bit more technical and the other one is, is more kind of business context. And they kind of have to marry themselves together, which is probably why there's such a, a, a blurred definition of what all this is supposed to be. And then I'll add one more thing, which is I think that the general trend, which not all of these gaps have been filled in, um, certainly not, not for you know, the quote-unquote enterprise, is that all of this stuff gets solved more and more with, with software with, instead, of, instead of kind of like process and procedures. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, and just to add a little footnote to that, that is, if you go all the way back to like the mid 2000s, like the height of enterprise architecture, there's in, in coming up with whatever cloud native enterprise architecture is, there is a very important little step, which is exactly what you just said is like, we're sort of only talking about custom written software now, right? Like you will have to interface with other things and you're going to need some networking, right? Like there's all these, this support stuff that you need, but like, we're not really interested in ERP systems and things like that, which has not always been the case with enterprise architects, but sometimes uh, they're not really into software development. So that, that is, well, the funny thing is here's, here's the funny thing. And it kind of comes back full circle and it really just on, on some level comes to, you know, what's differentiating to your business and what are you going to, what are you going to do the heavy lifting on many of those ERP integrations while they, on some level, looked like you were buying an off-the-shelf solution, required so much customization, it definitely blurs the line into that custom software development. And, and in, I've had conversations um, from a pivotal perspective where people are looking at their options and where they're at with some of this off-the-shelf software that they, they've literally customized so much of it that they're, they're bearing all... The, they kind of have the worst of both worlds. Like, they're bearing all the weight of custom software development with none of the flexibility. Yeah. yeah, yeah and, I think and, oh, go, go ahead. That's a, that's a whole sales model of like the, the late nineties. It was just this, like, I'm going to sell you a piece of software that's not actually usable unless you do exactly what you said, which is put as much money and time into professional services to customize it. Um, you know, uh, as, as it would basically build exactly what you need from scratch. And, uh, yeah, that was a big, that was a big, uh, challenge, but I mean, how much of this is that just the world has changed? So I think there's a lot that you said there, Andrew, which is, um, like our risk profile of these decisions has changed and I'm not sure that the practice has totally changed with that way the risk profile changed. So for example, whereas before, like what middleware I used was like a big decision with big economic consequences as open source and cloud have evolved. My ability to experiment and learn makes the risk of making that decision wrong, like much lower. Um, and so is it just that the, that the emphasis of the practice hasn't changed but where that emphasis needs to be placed from a business perspective has evolved and changed. This is a great point that I think plays out at many different layers in, in the organizations where you've essentially got processes that were, were born into a world where every decision was very, very expensive. And so it warranted this heavyweight, expensive decision-making process to, to justify the, those investments, where now I think that for the most part, the enterprise is dominated by decision-making processes that are actually more expensive than, than the decision they're making, yeah. especially with respect to some of the new technology. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, on that point, it's interesting that our, the, one of the, the, exam, the first example you're going over, uh, Matt, was sort of like uh, the enterprise architect uh, as ROI whisperer, right? Like, like could, could sort of explain why we should be doing this and what, what the, uh, the, the sort of return on it was and why it was going to help the business out, which, 
which which I, I could see could become all of what an enterprise architect would do, and certainly seems like a function that should be achieved. But to the uh, to the point of what we were just saying, uh, when the inputs to your calculations change, right? When it's cheaper to get software, and then even more importantly, cheaper is not exactly exactly the right thing. But when it's it's less risky to choose the wrong thing because you can more rapidly choose something else or that you can isolate the bad effects of choosing that. It, um, I mean, it goes back to the, the, the straw person thing of like a large part of what governance is, is preventing bad things from happening. You want to prevent bad things from happening because they blow up and have negative effects. So if you can minimize that negative effect to some extent, you can kind of open up, you can be more freeing, do less policing perhaps. Yeah. And I think that, um, Andrew, hit it on the head which is each risk carries some potential dollar figure of impact and it's important for us to rationalize that the cost of mitigating that risk versus the potential impact and maybe it's okay just to roll the dice um, but I think a lot of enterprises feel like their entire job is is making risk as close to zero as possible and we spend a lot of money a lot of time and a lot of effort on things like architecture approval of what library you're going to use in your application. And this is a process that exists at most enterprise. Like I've talked to a lot of pivotal, other pivotal customers, a lot of folks um, at OzCon and other conferences. And this is actually one uh, that I'd like to pull the thread on a little bit because it's a common complaint I hear, which is that as soon as I go to include a library in my application, I have to go through some kind of approval and governance process. In many cases, it's run by architecture. And we really have to start asking ourselves, what is the real business benefit to doing that? Um, because like switching so this, from one library a... to another may not be a big deal. Or maybe it is a big deal, but we treat it like it's a huge deal. This is a great segue to the to the topic that I try to force every conversation into. Which is the software or the service reliability engineering um, book from Google, mm -hmm. and uh, if I haven't said it enough, I'll say it again that everyone listening to this should go read the first three chapters from the principles section of that book. And the first one is, and relate exactly to what Matt just said, uh, embracing risk. And then the second one is service level objectives, and then last but not least, eliminating toil. And I'm not telling you to read the rest of that book, but if you do read that book, what you'll what you'll quickly realize is that at at Google, the SREs, while they have a lot of operational responsibilities, are essentially also the architects of of Google. And and so 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 to that end, and uh, like like I mean I don't know we we could skip ahead to the to the theoretic punchline, but. Uh, so, so what are, you know, you mentioned some of the process changes just now, right? Like here, here's some ways of thinking, you know, starting with this notion that we actually could embrace risk. And then, you know, for people who've, who've read through the, uh, the, the SRE stuff, like here's this, uh, this code of how we want to live <laughs> and therefore what we want to do that drives us making decisions about how we build out the, the technology. Like what are, what are these technologies that change things, right? Like, and I mean, obviously I know the, the answer sort of, but like, why don't you two go over like what the things are that are making that are changing both the risk profile and the ability to like fail better and like what's the actual stacks down there that are scurrying around so the way that they, that google handles this and not that everyone can be google and you know that's obvious but the the way that they've grappled with this is one they approach everything as a software problem so everything that can be solved with software they try to solve with software and then what they've, what they've done over time is accumulated a set of services, a set of modules, a set of libraries that they know adhere to the promises that they want to be able to keep with respect to reliability, with respect to security, with respect to scalability, all the illities and entities that, you, that you'd want to have. And when a developer is building things or development team is building things with those components, then the SREs are very confident about the, the promises that they can keep with that, with that service. If someone wants to do something outside of that, 
then then they they have a a bit more of what looks like kind of a traditional change management process as the SREs go through that reliability assessment so that they they can feel better about the the promises they can keep. Yeah, I think, and that is an interesting um, dynamic that I think you see at a lot of companies at scale, which is that you have some something that looks like a developer framework, right? A uh, set of tools, set of libraries. Usually dare I call it's unified. it? Dare I call it a platform? Dare you call it? Everything is a platform. It, but yes, it is a platform, right? It's the moving up the layers of abstraction. Um, and and that is what it starts to look like. But what's interesting about that is, you know, you're basically talking about we we're hitting on the value line and like, yes, the architectural aspects fall below the direct value to the business. And so building them into the platform and enforcing those behaviors with software is the preferred way to go, assuming that you can. And you should force yourself into that because I think Amazon kind of proved to everybody that there's less artisanship required than many had assumed previously by just creating some good abstractions. Wait, so, so, so detail that a little. What, what do you mean? What do you mean by artisanship there in this context? So I think with what Amazon has delivered with like RDS and how you how you basically think about the abstractions around data. So data is a hard problem. So I think it's a good one to pick on. And Andrew will probably, you know, might uh, step in on this one as well. But I think everyone, at least my own view, I can even speak to my own view, is kind of like data is hard. Everybody does it different. Um, you need to kind of craft a data offering to like whatever the expectations are of the organization. And I think Amazon just kind of said, yeah, or there's like these 20 things. And if you do them correctly, you get good enough and you're probably willing to make whatever compromises um, in order to get the speed and the consistency of these guarantees. Mm. And I think like that was a lot, that was something that hadn't really been done uh, very much prior that everybody kind of felt like, no, I really like this is data. Data is hard. If I lose the data, it's really bad. This is high risk. And by the way, data traditionally is very expensive. I need to put a lot of thought and time into thinking about how does it replicate? Where does it go? Where does it get stored? And then Amazon kind of just stood up this thing and was like, yeah, or you could do this and uh, solve those problems a different way. So, so what, what is the, uh, what, what is, what is the this of the Amazon stuff like? What are the maybe it's twenty, but like what's what's what is their dare I say it prescribed enterprise architecture for handling data? So when you uh, when you go and provision an RDS instance, you can basically decide how big you want it, and you can decide basically the level of availability, and it kind of figures out um, where to put stuff on your behalf, and it sets up a lot of the replication for you where, um, you know, before you would have like a database architect very much aligned to like figuring out all those patterns. And not only that, they might not figure them out like one time for your entire platform. They might figure it out differently for every project. Right. And right. Uh, think of that, you know, that's where the different, the big difference is. So, so in this, I think it, there's, go ahead. I was going to say there's a, there's a couple reasons why data is hard. Um, most of them come down to to physics problems, but but I think that the the thing that you recognize when you start trying to solve these problems is that one everything matters. the The hardware matters, the locality matters, you know, the latency matters, and then and then as you as you make those choices, if you're wrong with data, the wrong choices are more catastrophic, right? And and so there's there are certain promises that Amazon or any of these other cloud providers have have chosen to be able to keep, but they're not doing that with just software. I think that there's sort of this misunderstanding sometimes when people talk about databases that they they think that this database is a piece of software. It's actually a system that starts at the the bottom with the you know the actual disks or or uh, SSDs or whatever you have and is definitely um, impacted by the the network and everything else in between 
um, as well as the software. And so that whole system has to be thought about holistically and not very many organizations are, are set up with that skill set and the communication patterns to solve that optimally. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so somewhat connected to that, like, I think I, so, so if we, let's, if, if we divide, uh, let's see the, our, our, let's divide our straw person into like three chunks, <laughs> right? And one of them is the, all that business stuff, right? Whatever that understanding the business is and translating it down, right? And, and the, the, the Amazon data examples kind of a good one. And then there is, um, well, this is kind of two, but or one, but let's make two of it. One of them is like, um, prescribing the platform that you'll be using. So like in the Amazon data thing, it's like, well, you use RDS and, and here's the way, here's the way that you use it, right? Like you can, you can do these, you can use it in these different sizes and profiles and stuff, but these are your options for using it. And then I think an, another angle that, uh, is sort of scurrying around in here is, is basically like, and then outside of that, well, I, I guess it's not a part, but it's how many technical decisions are you going to make, right? Like, are you going to prescribe everything down to the pagination library that everyone's going to be using in their UIs? Or do you only worry about specifying the database? And so I'm, there's, there's other things that you'll encounter EAs doing, but it's sort of like those are, are sort of as we're translating to like whatever they should be doing nowadays, some of the core things. And and I don't know, thinking through that that division, I think a lot of the conflict, at least that I see, it starts with the the business side of things where we have this notion on our DevOpsy unified blah blah teams that it's sort of like the uh the team should be a product team that understands what people are doing with this thing and how it's being consumed end to end, not only running it, but sort of being involved in all the design and thinking about that. And in fact, you might want to have the business embedded or have them embedded with the business. So we sort of don't need to do this translation anymore, this this uh, business uh, IT alignment stuff. And then and then the, the platform stuff is is interesting. And, and, and you know, to uh, obviously there's a pivotal line here, which we can get into. But using the Amazon data example, it's sort of like this. Uh, it's almost like an enterprise architect's dream in the case of it's a take it or leave it option, right? Like you have, you can, this is the thing you can use or go away essentially. And then also it has the ultimate optimization of being a shared resource, right? Like you have thousands of, of people if, well, not people, but you've got thousands and thousands of things using this one shared resource rather than having a bunch of other resources. I mean, that's a huge part of what traditional EA people want to do is, and in fact, that old book that I read is all about the journey from silos to strong centralization. That's kind of what the enterprise architect manages. And so you've got that huge amount of standardization there around uh, around uh, RDS and things like that. And then the other area, again, it's it's the weakest of my three little things, is, is essentially here's the pagination library you should use, the programming languages, uh, and all of these other little tools and things like that. And you're basically telling all the, the teams how they should operate. So I'm just kind of like throwing out some theory here. It's sort of like if we have a, as, as, as we would say, a, a cloud platform, right, and uh, that automates all the stuff underneath it and is the application runtime, like an app server, a platform as a service, if you will, that uh, is the equipment that has the same effects of like a, a, an, an Amazon RDS sort of thing where you're like, well, this is the platform that you use and we all share it, right? Like you don't get to choose to use different app servers or different things like that. It just all runs in that. So that sort of like checks that off the EA's list. Uh, and so the product people have sort of taken away this need to do business IT alignment. And then the platform basically like removes the need to worry about prescribing all these different services and then you're left with like your pagination libraries, which, again, sort of like with your product teams, they're, you're, I mean, this is this is on the uh, you're not supposed to have to worry about that. And then and then I, I think maybe what's left over for an EA to do is sort of like um, service integration or something. Right. Like. But then maybe you just like do microservices and that solves everything. Right. But does it? 
<laughs> I think that's the the big question. Exactly. Is, and you know, we've seen we uh, organizationally I think like one pattern that occurs is like microservices without some like higher level of architecture and coordination, which is always the challenge, is like how do you decentralize and maintain everybody going in one direction? Um you'll see teams like build duplicate services or like do weird things and then you and you end up back in the place where you know you hit on earlier like hey i just want a unified view of the customer but like i have eight different customer services that people built because they don't talk to each other yeah and so like i think the architect uh can play a bit of a role in kind of bringing that together um and drawing like the boundaries around and you know, I, you know, I don't even know if it's maybe or, or becomes organizational consulting uh, to some degree to the higher level leaders about how, how do we make the organization aligned to the domain model such that we don't kind of end up in this place where we're duplicating effort all over. Mm. Sounds like a Conway's law problem. I think there's there's definitely a tension between the the idea of a microservice being a a bounded context. It gives a, a team the ability to focus on on one problem and, and solve it well without having to have the rest of these other contexts in mind. And then the the necessity that people have enough context about the larger mission of the organization to make good decisions that are optimal for for that mission instead of their their own lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The other thing, I, you know, I probably going a little off topic here, but coming back to Andrew's SRE discussion, the thing I love about the SRE model of kind of architecture is the consequence of the design decision falls back on the person who made the design choice. And so I feel like you just end up in this situation with like in DevOps, we always talk about shorten the feedback loop. Um, and I feel like you really tighten that feedback loop up of, um, hey, I have to like operate and troubleshoot this thing I designed or I helped design and had an influence in designing. And, Not only do uh, I get to troubleshoot it, I get paged if it breaks. Right, right. And uh, we always talk about how, you know, incentives drive behavior. And I think that, you know, that is what has enabled, um, you know, the Google, Google SRE model to evolve in the way that it has and allowed them to, you know, apply more focus and effort where it gives them the bigger dividends, right? So so then so then so then to do my uh, my uh, my purposely dumb dumb guy just like uh, charting out some possible things here. So so then uh, here I mean these are just all things I've been thinking as I look into this. It's it seems like this is starting to get to the punchline. What an what what a cloud native enterprise architect should be doing is at least maybe the following. I don't know. I mean it'd be interesting to hear we all's reflection just having worked on this stuff or talk with people or, or whatever, like if any of this like holds water, it seems like, and this is why it's, it's, it's fun to come up with uh, to talk about the SRE stuff is there should be a lot more attention paid to uh, governance around what process you're following, right? Like, you know, the, uh, if, if, if you do Dane to read through all of the SRE book, there's a lot of governance in there. Now, the punishment of governance is I am no longer going to help you. Sort of like the ultimate parent threat. You know, I'm going to leave you here if you don't get in the car, uh, which is great parenting. But <laughs> <laughs> that aside, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's sort of like these are the principles that we're going to do things by. If you want to have your – you can fill in my bad memory, uh, Andrew. You know, if you want to have like a global transaction lock – use this thing in this way. Otherwise, you're on your own, buddy, right? Like, these are some common services that we have, and you must follow this process in this way to be able to use them. So, well, I think this, the, the best way to answer this, you know, re yeah. referencing Google as an example that, that Google could exist, is that these, these things are all interlocking, like embracing risk, service low objectives, and eliminating toil all reinforce each other in an interesting way. And the goal in, in all this, the reason you're embracing risk is to try to enable the business and, and enable those developers. And you're trying to make that platform that you've designed and architected and are going to be on call for that gives the developers 
self-service access to do the right thing. You want to make the, the right thing the easy thing. I think where people run into problems with their governance model is that doing the right thing is actually quite difficult in many cases. And, and I have proven to myself more than once that given the choice between doing this thing that is right and doing this thing that's right now, I might opt to, you know, put something in to production on Amazon rather than go through whatever, you know, BS process was, was supposed to be followed. Right, right. And, and, and then that gets, that gets to the second sort of thing I've been thinking about maybe EAs need to do, which is, uh, and, and you, Matt, have a lot of experience with this, is like, well, someone's got to bootstrap us into doing this as a 10,000, 50,000 person organization, <laughs> right? Like, like someone, some ones need to be like the change agents who it's kind of an example of translating between the business and IT. It's sort of like translating between how we currently are and this, this, uh, outcome, if you will, that we want to get to. And, and I think, I think at a very helpfully, uh, high level, like Andrew, you just went over what that outcome is, is like, we need to be able to do things more rapidly so that the business can equally do things more rapidly and evolve and change and grow and try well, you, out new you, things. You have a very distinct, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed situation. And it's, it's kind of what I would recommend people do is, is educate themselves about what's possible and then try to figure out how, you know, using some of the stuff Matt talked about, uh, about selling this into the business, figure out how, the business can justify plotting a course to, you know, obviously embracing risk and, and managing services. I, I think that one of the most telling things from kind of a pivotal perspective or from a personal perspective, having conversations with, with many of these enterprises is how few of them, and I would say almost none of them, are able to articulate their, their actual service level objectives in, a, in an actionable way. Mm, right. A real a realistic understanding of what they're actually trying to accomplish. And, you know, it, it has to go beyond, oh, we just want 100 percent uptime as much as possible. Right. Like, you, let, let's be thoughtful about what we've actually built and how we're actually going to deliver it. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 then, and then in my brief review of the literature based on a 2006 and a 2015 book, uh, that theme comes up over and over again is they they're very polite and professorial some of them are professors but they basically say don't have bullshit slas <laughs> right it's just like be very specific about like your actual uh requirements with regard to these things but, don't uh, don't lie to yourself yeah and 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 then there's another thing you know we were we were talking earlier today uh andrew and you're reminding me of this is there's another benefit especially in this uh, i'll put a link to it but this 2000 Two, six book enterprise architecture strategy which is like for certain people that's just going to ring all your bells all those words like that's good stuff uh but there is mo most all of the book is what matt, what matt you started talking about first at matt which is like you should understand what the company how the company's business works <laughs> and and what their goals are and then that will drive all the decisions that you make and i would assume that there are a lot of people asking a lot of IT folks asking like what they should be doing. And it would be good to start with, well, how does your business run? Like what, are, what's, what's, and this is, I think this is a large part of why you see like uh, the utility of like, you know, value stream mapping and, and even that old uh, business model generation book. If you remember that, why, why does your business run? Exactly. And, and why, you know, it starts with like, why does it do this? And then to the point of understanding uh, the technology, like how are we accomplishing this nowadays and how might we do it better? Um, and it sounds ridiculous when you say that, but like, as I was joking about earlier, like my experience is that most people don't have the discipline to know that stuff. <laughs> and so they really just need to sit down and sort it out. And then, so that again, that's sort of like this, this function that it seems like a big picture centralized someone needs to do right like it's sort of like this bucket like someone needs to be minding the store on how the business functions and what it does and how it decomposes you know like like matt was saying like we don't want all these duplicate services so that seems like a very useful thing to still be doing uh and uh but i, I don't know i mean i keep coming back to this thing that it's basically like you need change agents <laughs> and and everything else is like details right a lot of what you have to do is yeah, yeah, exactly. Leadership. In some ways, I would argue, based on the straw man that we built, 
that the enterprise architect of Amazon is actually Jeff Bezos. Mm. There you go. Put that on the slide. Boom. Yeah. No, I, and, and I think, I think, I think there is a, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up here. It's always good to keep these things to an hour. Otherwise my head explodes a little bit and, uh, turns into jelly. But, uh, there, there is, you know, if you pull at this enterprise architect string too, too long, and, and you were starting to do it, Andrew, you're like, so what would you say the CTO does around here? <laughs> right? And then you're like, this CIO person, what are they up to? Right? Like, it's, it's this continuous string pulling of, like, who, uh, who finally is, uh, has, has that Harry Truman buck stops here thing of, like, they're, they are either the person responsible for this or they're responsible for putting the thinking and process in place in the organization such that it does it in aggregate, right? Someone has to be the, uh, the guardian of what are we doing around here, uh, however it's actually implemented. So any, any closing thoughts before we wrap up? I think you covered it pretty well. I think the big closing thought is obviously the role of architecture is changing and the focus is shifting. Um, but at the same time, the good news is I think a lot of architects are very equipped to help their organizations move forward into this more cloud native world because they know where all of the skeletons are in the closet and they understand how those previous decisions could impact their ability to move forward. Mm. Yeah. They have the lore. And I'll just add something that I've added um, in other contexts before that, you you haven't really learned anything until you change your behavior, and and to add to to Matt's point that getting all this information and getting all the rest of this is just to help you to put together whatever has to be sold into that organization to help it change. It's not it's not enough to like collect this trivia about what Google's doing or Amazon's doing. You have to figure out the contextually relevant things that you can do to improve yourself and your organization right now. Indeed. Well, uh, Matt, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet, if they so please? Uh, I'm Matt J. Curry on Twitter. And yourself, Andrew? I am at Little Idea on Twitter, or also you could do Andrew Clay Schaefer on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. LinkedIn. I love it when we get a LinkedIn reference. That's good stuff. Let's do it. That's right. Well, as always, this has been the uh, Cote Show Variety Podcast. In our our little enterprise architecture uh, sub-series, we'll have a few more out discussing it, and eventually I'll write something up and uh, pretend like I know what I'm talking about when I stand up full, you know, in front of a room full of people. It'll be enjoyable. That's pretty much what I do. Uh, if you want to subscribe to this podcast, you can go to Cote.show and find the subscription stuff there. You can find other episodes that, that we've done, and there'll be the, uh, the full show notes. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.